Guess what business literally tortures customers for profit? And slaughtering civilians and toppling prime ministers, the evil in the red centre. Coming up on this week's episode of The Citizen's Report. Welcome to The Citizen's Report. It's the 23rd of November 2023. I'm Robert Barwick and I'm joined today by Citizens Party researcher and editor Richard Barden. Welcome Richard. Thanks Robbie. In this week's episode, we're going to talk about the astounding whistleblower revelations relating to ANZ, but it's actually all the banks. And if this doesn't make you mad, nothing will, but I'll try not to get too mad. Um, and then we have a very interesting uh, expose on what actually happens in the red centre of Australia, which is that if Australians actually thought it through this installation that exists there, um, we wouldn't tolerate it. We'll join people like Malcolm Fraser in calling for it to be dismantled and chucked out of the country. Um, But let's get into that uh, as quickly as we can. First though, remember, help us get this show around. Like the show, share it on your social media connections, subscribe if you're not a subscriber, remember to ring the bell icon. Make a comment below and get the conversation going. Uh, Very, very important and we try and participate um, as time allows. Um, And also, there's a donate button there where you can help us support our activities. We are not, uh, this is not an information show, this is an activism show. We're trying to actually change the country and we're, we're making some good progress towards doing that. Next week, I won't be hosting the show because I'm going to be in Canberra. Because on the Friday, the 1st of December, I and Glenn Isherwood will be testifying on behalf of the party to the um, Senate inquiry into bank branch closures. And we're going to be testifying on the importance of a public bank as a solution to this crisis. And we're we're about to give you a lot more evidence of why that's necessary. Um, So you can help with that process by donating to what we do. Um, Also, Richard, just quickly before we start, We're in the middle of a campaign, a mobilisation on the question of the RBA review, which we talked about last week. Um, And we've put out a statement, a couple of statements in the last week about that. So we've been getting people to make phone calls and send emails to the Treasurer, Jim Chalmers, the Shadow Treasurer, Angus Taylor and your local Member of Parliament. And this is to intercept a bill that Jim Chalmers says he's going to introduce in the last week of November, which is next week in Parliament. He's foreshadowed this bill, which will, which will um, implement the recommendations of the RBA review, out of which the 50 recommendations, the number one is to take away the government's veto over the RBA. And this means removing all democratic accountability, democratic authority over the RBA. People in a country like Australia should not tolerate the government doing this. This was a hard-fought power, a hard-fought protection for the people from the banks and our government is an opposition are just willing to give it up. The latest is, um, it, there is a, it is most likely that, that the bill that gets introduced next week will be referred to a Senate committee, which is great, which means they can't pass it straight away. It'll go through an inquiry process. Wait for the details of that. That'll be the next stage of what we do, getting people to make submissions to that inquiry. But for now, keep calling all week. If you haven't done it already, call your Member of Parliament, Call Jim Chalmers' office and call um, Angus Taylor's office. The details are below. It's very, very important that they understand 
when the Treasurer of Australia, Jim Chalmers, understands when he gets up in that room in the House of Representatives to introduce the bill, that this is a controversial bill. They, they wanted to keep it under the radar so it wouldn't be controversial. And if they understand it's controversial, then the people in the room will be getting nervous about it. That's what we've got to um, create. We need to get them to back off on this, taking away this power. Um, and to that end, Richard, because, because uh, Jim Chalmers is, from, is a Brisbane boy, uh, tomorrow there's our, our Brisbane activists are going to be holding an event. In, when I say tomorrow, today's Thursday, so on Friday this week, they're going to be holding an event in his electorate, outside his electorate office, demanding he not do this. All right, So wait for updates on that event. Um, all right, so that's enough. Uh, before we get started, let's get into it. Guess what business literally tortures customers for profit? And you will never guess, mm-hmm. ever. I mean, it's, you'll be astounded when I tell you the answer. Can you guess? Yes, a bank. And, I, and I, I'm saying literally torches because I want people to think about this. One of the reasons that we've got traction on this campaign, Richard, is because it strikes a nerve. What we're talking about in the community strikes a nerve because people all relate to the experiences that they have had dealing with the banks and especially it's the banal experiences that end up being the most frustrating. It's going into a bank like in your lunch break, because you need to do some banking, and you've got to go to the bank to do some banking, and there's a long queue there. And you've got the pressure on you of, oh, am I going to be late for my next thing? Because, And then when you're in the long queue, there's one or two tellers, right? And that kind of pressure... In fact, I'd go so far as to blame the phenomenon of road rage in Australia on the banks. <laughs> I mean, you know, like something triggers people to be angry. And they, why, you know, why is this so frustrating to deal with these mm-hmm. banks? Um, and then when you get to the uh, counter, after it's waiting in the queue for a long time, then the bank staff turn around and say, oh no, you can't do that here. You've got to go outside and do that at the ATM, right? And you're thinking, why can't I do that here? No, 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 our rule is you've got to go outside and do it at the ATM. And you want to yell at them, but you know it's not really their fault. They're just implementing a rule, right? Um, that sort of thing. Or the, there was a, there's an article in one of the, the uh, Redcliffe, I think it was, newspaper that someone sent to us last week about a, a mother who's in a hurry to um, go and get her kids from daycare and she has to do some banking and she goes to the bank and it's lunchtime um, and she can't deposit the money. She's a small businesswoman. She can't deposit it in the ATM, right, because it's not working. So the door of the bank, though, is shut and she's knocking on the door because she sees people inside and they're not answering the door. And then a bank staff member comes back from lunch and is going into the door and this mother says to her, I need help. I've got to do this. I'm in a hurry. I'm late to pick up my daughters. And instead of helping her, the staff member goes inside and shuts the door because the rule is they can't be open for lunch, Hmm. right? Um, and there's two, there's two general examples. I mean, fill in the blanks. for the, You've all heard these stories, right? The town of Coobapedi is now living in fear because Westpac shut down the only branch in Coobapedi and they've now they had to all scramble and buy safes so they could have some pl- safe place to put their cash because there's no bank in town anymore, right? And then they have to think the next, the next 
bank is 546 kilometres way down a highway where for two hours of the trip there's literally no communications coverage at all, no mobile phone coverage, etc. It's a black spot that thieves, organised thieves, could get themselves organised to lie and wait for people knowing that a lot of the cars coming out of Cooperpedia are going to be full of cash because they're going south the bank. That sort of thing, and they're, they're terrified of that solely because Westpac shut down in the town. Um, you know, there's a... I'm trying to get people to understand all those experiences where there's a knock-on effect because of the bad, because you've, you've dealt with a bank where they're not going out of their way to serve you, they're mm. making you wait in these queues unnecessarily. And this is not new. Mm. So I'll start off with a story that involved me <laughs> back in 1998 or 1999. I mean, so, you know, somewhere along the line, bankers, bank executives started coming up with schemes right, to, to incentivise people, create incentives for we, the customers, to do the things that they want us to do. And in this particular case, back when we used to get paid once a week with a cheque, the little bit of pay that our National Secretary, Craig Isherwood, would eke out for us. <laughs> um, I remember going to the, to the bank on a Thursday, the Commonwealth Bank down here in Coburg, and I'm in this massive queue, and it was a big queue, it's about 30 people in it, and there were two tellers in a building where there's room for at least 12 or 13 tellers, right? And after about half an hour, I'd moved one pace. And I'm shifting from foot to foot and getting angry. And I'm, everyone in the, in the queue is murmuring and the queue's getting bigger all the time. And I'm thinking, what is this? What is going on? And so me being me, <laughs> I decided to do something about it. And I inherited a loud voice from my father. So I deliberately used it, and he used to, the way he'd get our attention as kids is suddenly this big booming voice, right? What are you doing? So I thought this will shock him. And I actually, if I had a thought, I was a bit younger in those days. If I had a thought it through, I thought maybe this is not the best thing. Maybe you shouldn't shock people in a bank too much, right? <laughs> um, but I thought, anyway, I did it. Suddenly I just started yelling, can we get some service here, please? We pay your wages. We want, a, we want service. And the, 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 uh, the tellers behind the, the counter straight away, I mean, they didn't know what was happening, but they quickly realised it wasn't a robbery. It was angry customers, right? Um, and I kid you not, within a millisecond, the back doors opened and all this staff filed out and filled up all the tellers and we were through in two minutes. <laughs> and people were, were, were leaving their spot in the queue to come and shake my hand for doing that. <laughs> and then I went into the to the, uh, the, the Bank of Melbourne next door because I had to go and pay a bill there. Um, and as I'm queuing up there, there's a, there was a guy in the queue ahead of me and he's turning to his wife and said, that's the guy I was telling you about. That's the guy I was telling you about. <laughs> that's the day I was the king of Coburg, right? I, I took on the banks. Um, that was 25 years ago or whatever it was. Um, well, what we're about to tell you is much worse. And the worst mm. thing is it's absolutely deliberate and systemic. This is a, this is a bank torturing its customers. So here's what's happened. The ANZ has a whistleblower. Um, he's gone to news.com.au and in an excellent series of articles by Michelle Bowes at news.com.au, hats off to Michelle Bowes, she has, she's reported on what this whistleblower's had to say. So he's a former ANZ staffer work, who worked at an ANZ branch and he's come clean with what ANZ does to customers. For the purpose of the article, she's called him Philip, but that's to, that's to protect his identity and the identity of the people he worked with, right? So she's, she's protecting the staff here. 
Here's what, I, here's what they've reported. A former ANZ employee has alleged that the bank is forcing customers out of branches and then using their absence to justify branch closures. That's the gist of it, forcing them out of the branch and then, oh, there's no customers here, we can shut the branch. That's what he's, he's come clean with. He said, staff are directed not to serve customers who come to the branch. Um, they're told to have a, quote, digital first mindset. And when the customers queue up, direct them to use the in-branch ATM or telephone to do their banking. So th there's an ATM in the branch, there's a telephone in the branch. Go there and do that. I mean, yes, I'm standing here behind a, a desk. I'm a teller. I've got a computer in front of me. I could do what you need like that, like that. But I'm not allowed to. You have to I have to tell you to go use that ATM or go and use that telephone to do your banking. Or even, I will come with you to that ATM and show you what to do. Here, give me your card. What's your PIN number? I promise I won't memorise it. I won't. What's your PIN number? Here, I will do it for you. That's what the staff are directed to do. Why? Because these transactions would not be counted in the branch's service statistics. Now, that should infuriate every person in Australia who's dealt with this issue. And let Which me talk... pretty much everybody by this point. Pretty much. And here's the other thing, Richard. This is an ANZ whistleblower. They all do it. Mark my words, they all do it. There's a consistent pattern across all of them. They are all doing this to their customers, maybe with some slight variations. But if Matt Common or... Ross McEwen from NAB, Matt Common from Commonwealth Bank, or Ross McEwen from NAB, or Peter King from Westpac wants to sue us for say they're doing this as well, come and sue us. Right? You all do it. You all abuse and torture your customers in this way because you're all faking your stats. But let's back, to, let's back to ANZ. In July this year, Shane Elliott, the CEO of ANZ, was at the House of Representatives Standing Committee on Economics, um, and he admitted that his bank had closed 287 branches across Australia since mid-2017. And he told lies in that testimony. And when the independent journalist Dale Webster put up tweets at the time pointing out how, for instance, he said they hadn't closed any remote branches and she showed they'd closed 25% of them or something and said this was a lie, ANZ called her to say, please take down your tweet. They were very, very sensitive about this. But they had already closed some branches these branch closures under Shane Elliott absolutely accelerated from 2017. But then he said this in the hearing back in July. He said, a lot of people bemoan the fact that branches are closing, but they don't actually use them. I mean, clearly, we're running a business here and we want to be interacting with our customers as much as possible. That's what he said. We want to be interacting with our customers as much as possible. And then Richard, back in October, when he came back to this to the Senate inquiry into branch closures, he said the same thing. He said, we want to have customers come into our branches. That's what he said. But he'd already said, and Matt Canavan, the chairman, pulled him up on this, he'd already said how the staff are told to show people how to use all the, the, the digital options. Mm -hmm. And it's a big program for the staff to show people how to do that. And Matt Canavan said, why are you telling the staff to do that if you actually want people to visit your branches? Matt Canavan, in a polite way, called him out on his BS then, 
Now we've got a staffer who's actually going much further and actually describing the kind of regime they're running in these branches. I mean, I, I'm from the town of Childers, as are you actually. Mm-hmm. Richard and I are both from the same part of Queensland. Um, uh, Childers is one of those towns that's lost its ANZ bank. And when you're a town that loses an ANZ bank, unlike the other three banks, you don't, or all the minor ones, you don't get the option of doing your basic stuff even at the post office. You've got to go all the way to Bundaberg, which is 47 kilometres away, 50 kilometres practically, to do your banking. And now, according to my father, last thing he told me at the update was the Bundaberg branch of the ATM is, of, of ANZ is closing its ATMs. Hello? I mean, this is a bank, this is a bank that does not want to deal with customers. It actually doesn't. Um, that's why they didn't, they're the ones that didn't do the deal with Bank at Post. Um, so he's saying they want to serve customers and then he, they, quote, they quote these sort of, st- to back it up, they have statistics like Shane Elliott claimed that around 90 to 96% of all ANZ transactions were being done digitally. And that includes all those staff walking the customers outside to use the ATM, right? Um, in other words, they wouldn't have been done digitally if the staff weren't told to do that. And the whistleblower Phillips said, quote, those stats are inherently fudged. They're being driven by directives from management to frontline staff telling us we can't assist customers with certain services in branch. He gave examples of these directives. He said they'll get emails saying things like, over-the-counter traffic is up this month. Don't let it get away from you. Over-the-counter traffic. You're talking to too many people face-to-face. And, quote, try not to do any card activations in branch this month. So imagine if you want to activate your, your credit card mm. and you're told you, the normal procedure, go to the branch to do it. If you're unlucky enough to turn up at that ANZ branch this month, that month, that, that staff would be under pressure to tell you, no, you can't do that here. And you've gone, you've made time, carved time out of your day to go and do that. Oh, sorry, we can't do it because there's a Kiwi a-hole who runs our bank named Shane Elliott, right, who doesn't want us to serve you. Um, he said they'll get verbal directives such as all transactions under $1,000 must be done using an ATM. So it doesn't matter who comes in, the little granny or whatever. No, no, if it's under $1,000, you've got to go use the ATM. And then listen to this, though. This, this is what really got me. Um, Philip said, um, oh, well, two things. Sorry, I haven't got to that part that really got me yet. <laughs> long, long, he said long queues for service were a common sight in his branch, which had, which had multiple workstations for tellers, only one of which was ever manned. And, and that isn't that the mm. that the, the, the probably the single most frustrating. That's what got me going 25 years ago. You're in there. There's all these. There's all this infrastructure to serve you, and there's only one being used, mm. right? Um, but then this is what got him. This is what this is what made him quit ANZ. Um, the day an elderly, vision impaired customer was struggling to use the ATM, he served her at the counter. And when he did that, a supervisor essentially dressed him down, questioned his actions. My supervisor directly said to me, quote, if customers want service, it's on our terms. That's the day I quit, he said. That that is the thing that that quote there from the supervisor, Richard. That is, to me, that's, that's one of the main things that I've absorbed from attending all these hearings. That here you've got an, a particular sector 
the banking sector, and especially the big four, they are exempt from the, the business adage that the customer is always right. Mm. What sort of business is not bound by that? Well, there's only one type of business, and that's a cartel. That's a, car- a cartel is where the, the provider has more power than the customer. Yeah. The vendor has more power than the customer. Well, vendors, because they all do the same thing, as you said earlier. That's, you know. it's an, and, and they do it together. So you, so you can't go, well, you know, get stuffed, I'm going over the road, that's because right. you'll just run into the same thing there. So they'll just smirk at you and say, good luck. And that's what, that's what they're playing on, right? So this is all they... So connect what Philip said to every experience you've had at these banks that then turn around and say, look, no one's using us, we can close them down. And then, and then the knock-on effect from that is worse. And before, Richard's got a follow-up on this, but I just want to tell you the story of ANZ in Seymour. Remember the ANZ in Seymour? So Seymour is an hour up the road from Melbourne. Um, last year, there were floods in Seymour, mm. and the ANZ bank got flooded. And so what did ANZ do? Use the flood as the excuse to do what it was going to do eventually, which was shut the bank. Mm. And so suddenly the people of Seymour dealing with a massive flood that's, that's damaged their business, etc., are, are having the bank taken away from them. So they're told, go do your banking in Melbourne. And of course, if you're a bank, you've got to take, if you're a business, you've got to take cash. They, they've got to bring it to Melbourne. So one business um, reported, they drive the hour to Melbourne. They go to Craigieburn, to the, to the, to the branch there. And the branch says there, they walk into the ANZ branch there and the ANZ branch there says, oh, sorry, we don't take cash on Tuesdays. So they, they've got the infrastructure to take it on Monday, on Wednesday, on Thursday, on Friday, but we don't take it on Tuesdays. You've driven an hour here. Sorry, mate, you're unlucky. It's Tuesday. So then you've got to go to the Broadmeadows ANZ. So then he has to get in his car, go through city traffic to the Broadmeadows ANZ, and when he gets to the Broadmeadows ANZ, they didn't want to serve him until he put a, kicked up a big enough stink that the manager came out and eventually agreed to serve him. This is, what sort of industry is this? Right? This is one that's completely out of control. So naturally, Richard, ANZ is not happy with this whistleblower. Mm-hmm. They've come out denying this and using all their well-formulated um, uh, you know, by, by uh, marketing people, etc., weasel words to pretend that they're the nicest mm. people in the world, right? Um, when, of course, they're clearly not. So um, they've denied this, but because it's clearly true, other ANZ, ex-ANZ staff have come out and said, hang on a minute, this is our experience. What's yep. that? There's two, the, the latest in this series of articles posted last night. They've got uh, she, Michelle Bowes, Bowes, whatever it is. Um, she has... Two former branch managers and uh, someone else who was involved in the technical management side, all confirming what Philip, uh, whatever whoever he's, whoever he really is, has said. Uh, one former branch manager says, "Yeah, quote digital ATM, digital that is ATM transactions versus staff assisted, and it's not just ATMs. They have in branch iPads that they get people, they walk people over to. Yeah, yeah, just put in your password and your PIN in this." while I'm standing here, right? On an unsecured machine, as far as you know. Yeah. Great. Uh, digital transactions versus staff assisted, that is teletransactions, were used by the bank as a performance metric. Branches, this is a quote from the manager, former manager, branches would often close the telling services in quieter times under the guise of system outages. 
So yeah, pretending that. that they had technical failures that did not happen. <laughs> Pretended system outages. To, to, yeah, to force customers to use ATMs, end quote. And then here's another quote. Staff were told to use these opportunities to educate customers on the use of self-service options, end quote. And he added that lower in branch transactions were also used to justify not adequately staffing branches that were to remain open. So the ones that they didn't use this as an excuse to close. Um, and then ANZ Plus, the digital only banking oh. platform, where you, as far as you know, you're opening an ANZ account, you're yeah. doing it online, right? Um, no, turns out not. So this former branch manager says that when ANZ Plus was launched, branches were instructed we could not assist with customer signups and information, etc. Why? Well, staff were instructed, and said that changed shortly after, and staff were instructed to use the ANZ Plus platform for all new signups, unless the customer had zero ability to use online platforms, so they were like blind or whatever, like this yeah, lady yeah. that Philip served and got in trouble for. And so, okay, we can help you set it up. You can set it up in branch, but guess what? When they came back, and this was another performance metric that they were judged by, and then branch staff, once that account's set up, he says, quote, Branch staff are unable to access any ANZ Plus details, including account numbers, balances, etc. Only an online team can assess with inquiry, can assist with inquiries. Customers are unable to perform any transactions at the counter involving withdrawals from an ANZ Plus account. This is also inflating the digital numbers as customers have zero choice of branch interactions. So if anything goes wrong with your online banking, you, you know, you run out of data on your phone, anything happens at all, yep. Optus goes down for an entire yep. day, for example. No, sorry, you're stuffed. And then another ex-ANZ uh, employee who worked on ANZ Plus told this reporter that he can confirm, yeah, there is a specific drive to get the bank out of cash and close branches to reduce costs. Quote, there was a strategic initiative. They've even got a name for it. My Cash Experience. <laughs> that aimed at changing cash handling to a supply chain and having customers pay for the service. Yep. ANZ was very heavily pushing to move customers away from using tellers and instead using digital and ATM self-service and in-branch greeters, what the... Uh, what ANZ the other day called its concierge, concierge yeah, service, yeah. were, quote, heavily incentivized. They were paid bonuses. Heavily incentivized to redirect customers to the ATMs and the iPads. Um, and when someone came to the teller bench, they were instructed to walk the customer over to the ATM, exactly as Philip yep. said. Um, so, yeah, customers are visiting branches much less over time. I wonder why. <laughs> so the... the what this destroys is this lie that the banks have spin, been spinning all along, and, it, it, and it, they they had they were foolish enough to express this lie at the at the Senate hearings, and then because of the blowback, they stopped wanting to attend the Senate hearings. But the, the lie was, we're not forcing customers online; we're following them. That's where they want to go. Anna Bly has been going around Australia this year trying to counteract this Senate inquiry giving interviews, and she's the head of the Banking Association, right, former Labor Premier of Queensland, Jim Chalmers' special confidant, um, saying that this is, a, this is a, a massive shift in banking where customers are jumping into digital banking with both feet, right? Um, this is what they want to do. Well, those two statements do not gel with these articles about ANZ. And um, 
we've seen the actual evidence, like the we've seen the the, the um, you know the 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 the, the data, like the um, you know the, the key the key clues in the other banks that they're doing the same thing, right? This is this is the point. Now here's here's what's interesting. Um, Dale Webster, the independent journalist who did so much to get this regional inquiry up, she called this in on the 19th of December last year. She wrote an article on her website, The Regional, and, and, the, and the, article, the headline is, No Regional Australians, Things Aren't Quite As The Banks Say. And she took this to task because up to that point, uh, at, at that point, um, work from the finance sector union, which represents these tellers like Philip, They'd started to say, look, this is our experience. And that was enough, right? They, they, te- they tended to tell the story from the standpoint of the tellers, the pressure on the tellers. Philip's done a, a better job, frankly, in telling the story from the standpoint of the experience of the customer, right, which is why he quit being a teller. But nevertheless, it was enough. And, she, and, and um, uh, Dale Webster wrote, she goes, customers of regional bank branches, this is 19th of December last year, Customers of regional bank branches that are being closed have long had a sinking feeling they are being played. The letter arrives notifying of the closure with the facts clearly spelled out. Customers have failed to use the branch as often as they used to. They are turning to digital channels in preference to -to face-to-face services and choosing to use an ATM over speaking to a teller. But what the Finance Sector Union revealed is, and this was in testimony to the Regional Banking Task Force, so the government's had it for a couple of years, they revealed we are paid a bonus for migrating customers to digital banking. This accident in a catch-22 situation is once converted, staff are cut and then branch hours and then closures. So that the more success they have in, to earn these bonuses, the more they put themselves out of a job. We are unable to open any account that a customer requests unless they are registered for internet banking. Um, just the other day we were told we're not allowed to deposit cash into customers' credit cards. We have to tell them, no, we can't do that and take them to the ATM. Our customer interactions get converted to numbers and those numbers make you look like a failure because they should be tracking down, not up. And Dale Webster pointed out the statements are a smoking gun. But what she said at the time, and this is why I'm raising this, she actually called it gaslighting, right? And she used a, um, she illustrated her article with a picture from the movie Gaslight, um, starring Ingrid Bergman in the 40s, this old black and white movie that I actually went and, I went, went and watched these movies. I watched, I watched the American and the British one both recently. Um, gaslighting is used to confuse victims and is an abuse of power, right? So you, you're manipulating your victim to, you, to, to, to um, mm. confuse them so that they assume that they deserve what's happening to yeah. them, right? It's, yeah, insisting, convincing them that what they saw and experienced didn't yeah. happen. Yeah. It wasn't real. It was something else. No, exactly. That's what gaslighting is. So I want to play I want to play a clip now because um, uh, Jason Bryce started a, an organisation called Cash Welcome. Um, and last week he was interviewed on Channel 7 Sunrise and it's just a three-minute interview. But I want to play it because Jason got started in his campaign, and Cash Welcome is now quite a big campaign. He got a he got a um, uh, a change.org petition up, which now has over one hundred and fifty thousand signers, right? And by the way, there's a there's a Facebook page, um, Small Businesses Welcome Cash, I think it's called. I might be wrong. We'll put the page up, and you can I'll get the producer to make sure the right headlines up there. That's only recently started. There's a Facebook group that's racing 
to the number of members. That's that's when I've joined it, it had, had about twenty thousand members. Now it's closing in on fifty thousand members. It might already be over fifty thousand members. But so you can have a look at that as well. And I, if you're on Facebook, I encourage you to join that. Um, but on the on the Jason Bryce one, he got started because his local bank branch closed and was told no one was using it. But he saw he saw queues out the door every day, right? So anyway, let's just listen to Jason Bryce summarize this situation for um, uh, Sunrise last week. Businesses and customers are rallying against the big banks pushing to keep cash in circulation instead of forcing Aussies to go card only. Yeah, close to 150,000 people have now signed an online petition arguing a cashless economy is unreliable and costs businesses thousands of dollars a year in exorbitant tap-and-go fees. The man who started that petition is Jason Bryce, and he joins us now. Good morning to you. Jason, you're outside a very busy coffee shop in the centre of Melbourne right now. Tell us why businesses are behind this. Look, uh... Businesses need to be able to accept cash. The Optus outage was just a big wake-up call, but there's often issues with FPOS and we're left dealing with cash. Um, young people, old people prefer cash. Sure, lots of people like to tap and go, but there's some times when we all need to use cash, and some people use cash every single day. They rely on it, they trust on it, uh, trust it, and uh, we're just asking the government to make sure that we can access cash in our local community and we can use cash to buy food and groceries. Uh, Jason, just give us an understanding of how costly it actually is, uh, the whole tap-and-go movement, day-to-day for businesses. So it costs thousands of dollars a month for a standard, average business like this one coffee shop behind me to accept cash, to accept card payments. Uh, just one FPOS terminal is like $200 a month. And if your volume goes down, your fees go up. So whatever happens, the bank or the phone company, the telco, is clipping the ticket on the way through. Mm. Cash is surcharge fee free. Um, people understand cash. People budget with cash. People save with cash. And some people use cash and rely on cash every single day. And it's just getting too hard to get. Bank branches are closing, ATMs are closing. As soon as there's an outage, we're stuck. We're not in control of our information. Our economy isn't inclusive anymore. Mm. And uh, our petition's just asking the government to have a look at this, to say, look, what's going on with our access to cash? This is national economic infrastructure. We all need cash sometimes, and a lot of people need cash every single day. Yeah, well, we certainly saw this with the Optus outage last week, didn't we? I suppose the banks are going to say we're closing branches because not enough people are using them. So it's supply and demand. Is that a good enough reason, though? So I started this petition when my bank branch closed and there was queues out the door every morning. They closed the bank branch and the ATMs and my local supermarket went cashless as well. Now, they backtracked a couple of months later. This is not being consumer-led. People want bank branches and people want to be able to access their money from a local ATM, but they're hurting us against our will into a cashless society that nobody's voted for, nobody asked for, We need to be able to choose how we pay for stuff, whether it be tapping or whether it be cash. And some people need cash every single day. Yep, and that's the thing, isn't it? That choice to be able to use cash if you still want to use cash. Jason, thanks for your time. No worries, Shervo. 
Now, the good news there, Richard, is that's part of the blowback, right? This is very important. This is they're not having it all their own way. One of the just just to point out the, the way politics and the media work. The, the, the news.com.au covered this story because the online media have a business model. And the business model is they want they write stories that get eyeballs, right? Because the company, if the if enough people read the article, then they're looking at the ads in the side. And that looks good, right? Mm. So when they write a story that strikes a nerve and gets a lot of eyeballs, then they're motivated. In this particular case, um, the the journalist writes the first story and then she follows it up with two more already, right? And this is just three days later. So it's clearly hit a raw nerve, but it's been doing that all year. And so that tells you just the behavior of the media in relation to this general issue of bank branch closures, banks pushing people to go cashless, et cetera, is proving that this is a red hot issue out there. And that's important to recognise because that's when the politicians start to pay attention, right? And that's been a big factor all year that politicians are paying attention. But the message we've got to get through to these politicians is this. They are responsible. It is their fault. How is it their fault? Because for 25 years, they've sat on their hands while banks have abused customers in this way and all kinds of other ways. And when challenged about it, like when people have experienced this and they go, how is this legal? How is this possible? Why is this happening in Australia? All those kind of, you know, off the cuff things that you think when something bad, like you, know, you have a, one of these bad experiences that would never have happened, you know, a few decades ago. Why is this happening? It's because the politicians have had a hands-off approach to banks. They've adopted the neoliberal view that the banks are self-regulated and it's not their business. But the same politicians oversee the, the passing of budgets and own the RBA and, and through the other stewards of the taxpayer owning the Reserve Bank, which gives billions of dollars to these banks. So if you, can't, if you give billions of dollars to banks to prop them up and you can't actually put some requirements on that, there's something really, really wrong with that model. But that's what they've been doing. And we've had three inquiries in 25 years, was, including the one that's happening now. They've, they know this is a problem. They've done nothing. Right, and it's it's always been hands off. We that's what we have to change. They have to become hands on. They are the politicians are responsible for making the rules that determine how society that makes society function properly. And in this case, they have to have rules that impose on the banks actual rules for serving customers, especially as a trade off for the public support. But it also relates to what we're talking about with the RBA, because what what they're doing with the RBA with this bill that Jim Chalmers wants to pass and he's been negotiating with um, Angus Taylor privately to pass it is taking hands off to the extreme. They own the RBA. It's owned by the Australian government, i.e. the taxpayer owns the, the government and the RBA. They own the RBA. It's their bank. They've had a rule for 72 years that when push comes to shove, the government has a veto over the RBA's decision. They can overrule the RBA. We gave the history last week on why that was so important. And these guys are going to legislate away their own power. And it's not theirs to legislate away. They're taking hands off to the extreme. No, accountability in our, in our system happens democratically. We get to change the government. If they take away this power, we'll never get to change the RBA. Right? That's what we've got to fight. It's the same mentality. It's, it's, what's, it's at the heart of the neoliberal disease and we've got to fight it. Um, so... Make those phone calls, send those emails to those guys and be motivated by this torture that you've just been reading about or hearing about. Um, let's leave that there.
because we're, we're running out of time for our next segment, which is actually quite important, so, but I've got Richard here to do most of the talking. <laughs> um, slaughtering civilians and toppling prime ministers, the evil in the red centre. And I've asked Richard to come on today because in the last two weeks, he's written two articles on Pine Gap. And everyone would have heard about Pine Gap, but now we've got a couple of damning reports that should make people really see it for what it is. And we'll just go through them um, uh, in order of the way you wrote them, Richard. So the first one is Declassified Australia, and Peter Cronow of Declassified Australia wrote an article about how um, Pine Gap is involved in helping the Israelis target their bombing campaign on the people of Gaza, Mm -hmm. which has killed... 10,000 plus civilians, and in fact, they've stopped counting, right? It's an absolute atrocity that's been going on there. Mass slaughter of civilians and thousands of children, and this is being helped by Pine Gap. Um, Now, it's not new, though, is it, Richard? Because Malcolm Fraser, the former Prime Minister, in this book, which is the year before he died, 2014, Dangerous Allies, he actually devotes a whole section in this book to Pine Gap, calling for it to be shut down. And he talks about the various things that it's involved in, including the drone program, right? So anyway, give us the details that are relevant. Yeah, right. So Pine Gap was set up in, it started operations in 1970 or so. It was um, supposed to be just a a satellite uh, receiving station for uh, the government. And the official line was that it was a joint project of the uh, U.S. and Australian defence departments and, and, the, and the U.S. were using it to uh, monitor compliance by the Soviet Union and uh, with the Strategic Arms Reduction, Nuclear Weapons Treaties, right? Yep. Um, and they were, uh, and they were also using it, um, and this was pretty well known um, even from early on, that they, it was involved in monitoring for missile launches, the old mutually assured destruction thing. You know, yep. We need enough warning to launch ours so that they can't get away with launching theirs. And it's in the southern hemisphere and that yeah, gives yeah. it an it's, extra it's, importance. Yeah, it's got this... Um, uh, there are what's called geosynchronous geostationary orbits. There's these specific places where you can park satellites. It's a long way out there. Um, and they need lines of sight to both the place they're monitoring and the receiving yeah. station that can collate the data, and that's what Pine Gap is. Because, that's why it is where it is. Because contrary to a certain belief, the Earth is not flat. No. <laughs> it uh, is a globe, and, <laughs> and it, it, it can see things that America's other installations yeah, can't. Even the Pentagon wouldn't waste this much money if the Earth were flat. <laughs> that's right. Um, okay, so the drone <laughs> campaign and the reason... Because Fraser, which I'll mention um, in connection with the second story, but Fraser um, supported those... But, yeah, he was a full-on hardline cold warrior in his day but he was lied to and when he realized that later on then he changed his tune you know because he was an honest guy and that that's all in that book people can read about it in there but he was an honest guy i got to know him quite well in his final years and um people would have people would have been surprised at the kind of discussions that we had yeah he had this great line someone said why have you become left wing he says i'm where i always was the whole thing has gone so far to the right the other the other way um, so anyway, um, yeah, the drone program, it came out via the, uh, a publication, online publication called The Intercept, um, that Glenn Greenwald was the founding editor of. Um, they published a lot of stuff based on Edward Snowden's revelations in 2013 and after, including that, 
um, uh, the, that 90% of the drone strike victims, the supposed terrorists um, in Afghanistan, Pakistan, Somalia, Yemen, um, were not the designated targets. They'd been posthumously reclassified as terrorists to cover up the civilian death toll. Um, and Pine Gap was the, was the uh, station that geolocating, they call it. They track your um, mobile phone yeah. signal and, and other communications real-time, feed it back to the system. And that gets fed to the guys in the air-conditioned shipping container in the desert somewhere, yeah. or the little donga that, that are killing people with flying murder robots, as somebody famously called them, thousands of miles away. One of whom, I, I, I actually apologise, I do... Uh, his name, I can't recall his name at the moment, this young American guy who blew the whistle on Daniel that. Hale. Daniel Hale, and he's now in jail. Yep. Um, so, yeah, uh, but it's doing that for Gaza as well. It's yep. targeting strike. There are two large satellites. Peter Cronow um, uh, said, yeah, there We've are... We've got an image of this, an old black and white image. black and white image you can see of the screen of the satellite orbits. Yeah, he said, so the Pine Gap facility, This is he, he was told by a former... U.S. National Security Agency guy who was a team leader at Pine Gap, David Rosenberg. Um, he told him that, yeah, there are, that the Pine Gap facility is monitoring the Gaza Strip and surrounding areas with all its resources and gathering intelligence used to us, uh, gathering intelligence assessed to be useful to Israel. Um, Cronow explains that there's uh, two large, what they're called Orion geosynchronous signals intelligence satellites belonging to the US operated from Pine Gap, located above the equator and um, over the Indian Ocean. So they look, there's actually three, but these, there's two um, that look over the Middle East, Europe and Africa. Um, and they're beaming all this intelligence back to Pine Gap and that's being analysed there and passed on to the Israelis. And it's been going on for, for years and years. You know, last time they bombed the hell out of the West Bank and Gaza and everything, uh, they were doing it then too. And the thing is, um, it, think how serious it is that a former prime minister, not just not just one of these six-month prime ministers like we had in the last mm. ten years, a pro, you know the third longest-serving prime minister in Australia, mm. right, Malcolm Fraser, has actually called for Pine Gap to be closed down. Yeah. And I know he, I actually spoke to him about this. One of the things that affected him deeply was this report because the fact that this was always targeting civilians in the yeah. way you, the stats you gave, and this 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 phenomenon of double tap killings where they would hit the target, hmm. they're trained to hit the target, wait for the civilians to run and assist the, the victims and then hit it again, yep. right? Um, and when you read, it was a big deal, it became a big political issue in the Obama administration. When you read the stories about, I remember the one thing that affected me the most in all the stories I read is how in places like Pakistan and Yemen and that, children learn to be afraid of clear days. Yeah. Overcast days, you were safe because the drone couldn't see you, so there was no targeting. Mm. But on a clear day, you can't see the drone. It's too high up. Suddenly, you can be blown to smithereens, right? Yeah. This, is, this is what we did in the name of the war on terror. And that really affected Malcolm Fraser deeply, and he demanded it be shut down. Yep. Um, but, Richard, it doesn't just do that. So now, last because the, the reason you got onto this story is because it's, um, of course, the 11th of November... Uh, is, the, yeah. is the anniversary of the Whitlam dismissal. And we've actually written a lot about the Whitlam dismissal, and including the fact that, I'll just state it briefly, there's a, you know, there's a, there's a number of things that made Whitlam a threat. Mm. One of those is um, definitely 
his, his, his government's campaign to buy back the farm because they wanted to take ownership of Australia's raw materials mm. away from the Anglo-American mining companies that owned it all and make them Australian-owned. And the, the Brits and the Americans did not want that at all. And the second one was Whitlam was absolutely insisting on an independent foreign policy, which made him uh, a, a, um, a real inconvenience and actual threat to the Anglo-Americans mm. again. Um, but, so there's a, there's a new series that's been written, published in Pearls and Irritations that actually provides some more details backing mm. that up, plus this really inc- inc- crucial role that Pine Gap paid yeah. in the Whitlam dismissal. Yeah, well, Whitlam came to government. He said, we, the same thing with the buyback the farm, right? They weren't just going to requisition, like, you know, chase them all out at gunpoint yeah, yeah, and yeah. take their stuff. <laughs> it was, you know, the classical stereotypical, you know, oh, communists. And yeah. um, Nixon called him a communist. Um, uh, Prince Philip called him a socialist asshole. Um, <laughs> but anyway. Um, but they weren't going to seize it. They weren't going to seize it. They, they just wanted to encourage Australian yeah. ownership. Similarly, he said, we um, are going to keep the current defence installations. Yeah. We, are, we do not uh, intend to allow any new ones. And then uh, on from that, after a few bits and you know, back and forth that we don't have time to get into now, but uh, people should go on the Pearls and Irritations and, and read these articles. Um, We'll put the links below. In 1974, right before the election that he won again, um, he said, all right, when the leases expire, we're not renewing them. You can get out. You can set these things up somewhere else. And the Americans were prepared to do that if they had to. They had proposals for that. But uh, no, they... uh, The problem was they made Whitlam a threat Mm. by not telling him what was actually happening at Pine Gap. It was, it was secret from the Prime Minister of Australia that there were CIA officers, undisclosed CIA officers. That's a big no-no with an allied country, right? right? Having spies operating from your territory without your own government's knowledge. The previous government knew because they were in tight with them. Mm. You know. So Whitlam wasn't told about this. He also wasn't t- told by his own Defence Secretary, Arthur Tange, Sir Arthur Tange, that, uh, that yeah, this... Uh, this base was, and Whitlam asked, is it targeting nuclear strikes? Will it make us a target? Um, apparently, they sort of dodged the question. Uh, they didn't tell him about the CIA. So the answer is yes. Yes, it was. It always yeah. has. It yeah. is now. It's still a target. Um, and they didn't tell him about the CIA operation, and they didn't tell him how important it was to their legitimate and euphemistic, you know, imperial, but their national security, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Britain and America, because it's the only place in the world, it and uh, a, a base that's been shut down since and reassigned mostly to Pine Gap, its functions, or they've just been superseded, called Narangar near Wyala in South Australia. But be- between the two of those, they were tracking, um, they, they, were, they were tracking the submarines, Soviet submarines, they were targeting them. They were, they, the Soviets only found out in the 80s that they could actually track their submarines oh, and okay. there was... You know, they freaked out about it. But um, anyway, Whitlam wasn't told any of this stuff. And so he didn't, apparently, according to Stanford, who was in the Prime Minister and um, Cabinet Department, um, he was a division head there. Um, that's the author of that's it. That's the, yeah, John, yep. John Stanford, who wrote these articles. Um, I'm not sure exactly when his career overlaps in this period. But, um, yeah, this is, that they don't tell Whitlam why this thing's so important 
because they don't trust him. And then he does things that make him more of a threat than he otherwise would have been because they haven't told him what's actually yeah, going yeah, on. Yeah. Um, and so, of course, MI6 is in on all of this and um, the British Secret Intelligence Service. They've got, the, they've got all their ducks in a line already for months and months, nine months before the dismissal. But what happened was Whitlam was a very smart guy, very, very smart guy, and he figured it out. He got hold of the information. He asked the right questions of the right people at the um, defence and the uh, Prime Minister's department, his own department, and got wind of the CIA, CIA operation. Um, and so he had to go. And the guy, Nixon, uh, President Nixon in the US, and Henry Kissinger, the infamous merchant of death, um, they had sent this guy who runs coups for the CIA or for the State Department and deploys the CIA, Marshall Green, as ambassador here in 1973 yep. in case they had to do this. The coup master. The coup master. He's known as he, he ran the coup in Indonesia. South D Korea. Um, he was involved in South Korea. He was involved in uh, Cambodia, Cambodia in 1971 was South Korea. And then straight from that, straight from his deployment um, as coordinator for Southeast Asia, he gets apparently demoted to ambassador to Australia. Why? <laughs> yeah, this is why. Because they, they had to run a coup. They knew they might have to run a, help the British. The two of, it's basically the CIA and MI6 are the same thing. They're branches mm. of the same organisation. Yep. Nowadays, it's called Five Eyes. Yep. Um, oh, and in his early career, by the way, I didn't mention this in the article, but he was the, pro, he was the personal assistant, secretary, gopher, you know, chief cook and bottle washer, to the Alan Dulles who set up the CIA. He, he'd ah. learned at the knee of the master himself. Oh, well, there you right? go. So, yeah, they send this guy to be ambassador to Australia. And, yeah, the MI6. He, and Whitlam, apparently, John Pilger reports, and um, we've got a link to the article when we post it on our website, that he reported in 2014 that, yeah, Whitlam was going, the day he was dismissed, he was going to tell the parliament and thus the people of Australia that this CIA operation was going on, but he never got the chance because um, he was thrown out of government yep. fraudulently. Um, and that side of the equation was also all intelligence agents. Um, Sir John Kerr had an intelligence background. Yeah, yeah. Martin Charteris, the Queen's private secretary, who gave him the all clear, was a colonel in the British yeah, Army. In, in running, Jerusalem, in, in the Jerusalem. British Mandate of Palestine, with the guy who was, in, in 75, was the head of, of MI6. MI6. Sir Maurice Oldfield who later on became one of the named pedophiles in a, in a uh, scandal in, in uh, Northern Ireland uh, around the Kinkora Boys' Home, if you want to look that up. Yeah. Um, so the, the point, you know, a lot of people you know, think the American, America runs everything and Britain's a lapdog and blah, blah, blah. Um, and the CIA overthrew Whitlam and other people, oh, it was, it was, it was the palace, it was, you know, it was all the Brits. It was, no, it was both. All the above. Because it's the Anglo-American empire. Yeah, exactly. There was a turn after Franklin Roosevelt died the Wall Street crowd took over, and that's where Dulles and all of these guys come from, the old East Coast, old money establishment, Anglophile to the hilt. Some of them even put on fake British accents. And if there's... An and the, head of the, the inaugural head of the CIA, James Angleton, James Jesus Angleton, was another one. Yep. So British intelligence and the CIA and Australia's ACES, they're the same thing. That's what yep. people need to understand. No, exactly. Um, and so the Pine Gap like the Union Jack in the corner of our flag, Pine Gap is a symbol of Australia's lack of sovereignty. Yeah, and it makes us complicit in every war crime that's been yep. committed since it was set up in 1970. No, exactly. Malcolm Fraser was a very hard man um, in politics, but 
I can tell you what, he was a very decent guy when you got to meet him in real life and someone of his stature in Australian politics called for this, like Whitlam was going to do. They wanted it shut mm. down. It's got to be shut down. Yeah. If, we want to, if we want to be a sovereign country, we can't have this evil um, symbol of the lack of our sovereignty working its evil in the red centre. Anyway, let's leave it at that. Richard, thanks very much. Thanks, thanks for doing that work. Um, thanks to the viewer for tuning in. Remember, we need to keep this question of the Reserve Bank front and centre. That's also about sovereignty. As John Curtin said, if the government doesn't control monetary policy, it cannot govern except in a secondary degree. Someone else is in charge. And the, if the people want to be in charge, we've got to make sure the government retains this power. So follow the details below. Phone those three targets. Email those three targets and keep it up all next week. Um, I'll see you when I get back from Canberra. But you can watch, uh, get onto the Parliament website. We'll provide the link below as that as well. Um, the hearing starts on Friday morning next week, the 1st of December at 8.15 a.m. I'm up at 8.50 a.m. So that's, in, that's Eastern Daylight Savings Time. So you can watch it live, our testimony to the Senate inquiry into bank branch closures. Um, that's it. Thanks for tuning in. Tune in next week for more of the Citizens Report. Authorised by Robert Bowick, Citizens Party, Melbourne.